0: get started. So uh, my name is Rob Beardsley. I'm the founder of Lone Star Capital. Uh, This is a quarterly webinar that we put on, which is our deal flow analysis. It's really our most popular webinar, and it's really a great tool for not just uh, our investors and people in the community to gain insights uh, through our deal flow about the broader market and the trends and and strategies uh, but it's also a great way for us internally to learn more about you know it forces us to be organized keep track of our deal flow and get nuances uh from it as well so it's it's really helpful not it's not just you know it's not just a marketing piece we don't just put this on uh you know it really is valuable for us as well uh so with that being said Charles, you want to quickly uh, introduce yourself and share screen and then kind of give a a rundown of of what the trade tracker looks like and uh, the basics.
1: Uh, Yeah, so um, Charles Waldron, uh, I do the acquisitions here at Lone Star Capital. Uh, I've been on the firm now for almost three years, uh, you know, and so, you know, that comprises like maintaining relationships with the brokers, making sure that we're, you know, getting the good deal flow in um and then just you know valuing selecting opportunities that we're going to pursue and kind of managing uh all of that process um you know and, and and kind of getting our opinion uh in place um so you know focused a lot on houston um here as well as a little bit on dallas um and so we try to really make sure that we understand uh, the specific market um and uh and yeah so uh with that i guess i'll share the screen and we can start built uh and then you know the, the important metrics are pretty much by unit, so a lot of these you know don't have um you know the full info but you know the economics and kind of the deal profiles kind of you know are evident um through the per unit counts um and then we're comparing kind of where we stand relative to the market um by looking at sort of the guide price that the put out or where the process uh, is targeting uh, versus what we feel we're able to pay, what we think makes sense uh, in light of market conditions and the specifics of the deal. Um, So obviously we're tracking, you know, it's the product is, you know, pretty typical for us, 1980s, you know, value add through some newer stuff and a little bit older stuff, but that's the the average. Um, Anyway, so yeah, continuing on. So, um, and then pricing per foot, um, guidance in dollars um, and then we like to keep track of cap rates and such you know where the uh helps us keep track of where the market is um you know both what we're projecting and what they seem to be asking for um and and the amount of lift uh overall as a, as a measure of spread uh, between the stabilized long costs. Uh, and then going in cap rate um and likewise we track you know returns that we're targeting uh, uh, you know so this is the this this column here would be the you know the uh, projected price and then kind of what we're targeting of course what we're targeting is always going to be a lot higher how far off or how close we are on the price um you know to keep track of kind of competitiveness it, it's sort of both a reflection of you know, are we getting there, but also is the market priced kind of in a way that makes sense for us? Um, Yeah. And then this NOI, this is used to calculate cap rates. So these cap rates are not just like plugged in kind of from our calculation, they're actually done in the sheet um, using uh, the actual NOI and the actual purchase price, uh, both at the guidance uh, and our price. Uh, And then likewise, um, you can kind of see capex per, per unit here as well for each deals so that kind of gives us a sense of you know for comparing the different deals that's a, a key element that tells us like is this deal a heavy lift should we be expecting more returns um or is this more of a kind of a straight down the fairway easy peasy deal uh or maybe there's just not that much value out on top of it that can be done um and so then the capex will be lower um so that's kind of the layers thing is we're tracking um, and then just so just to, uh, also, to go just to the summary stats uh,
0: really quickly to take a step back also for those people that are seeing this for the first time every row here uh, represents a deal that we've underwritten through our our full underwriting process and most likely have submitted an offer on so where these numbers are coming from as charles mentioned as far as the cap rates the analyze the capex budgets that's all happening in a, in a separate excel document which is our our underwriting model. So uh, yeah, so that's where the data is sourced for, for all these deals. And also to take another step back as far as just general pipeline and deal flow, I don't know how many deals we have here, but we t- we, we target to underwrite, I would say, and we could always do more, but I'd say we're targeting to underwrite around 100 to uh, uh, really 100 to 200 deals a quarter. And So so this isn't all the deals that we've underwritten for the previous quarter, but it is a a good sample size. And as you see in the the column H, most of these deals are on market. Some of these deals are off market. We'll talk more about that uh, as that's a popular topic as well. But yeah, that's just taking a step back. That's our our pipeline, uh, focus pipeline. So as you can see, most of the deals are in Houston. We're starting to underwrite more and more deals in DFW. So we started doing that a couple quarters ago. So we now have a few quarters of DFW data. So one of the interesting things that we might touch on today is talking about the way the data looks differently in DFW versus Houston, uh, because there is a difference. So anyway, I just wanted to add those few
2: things, but Charles, you can you can keep going. Um, sure, so guess just a comment. To the overall kind
1: of picture, um, similar, I'd say to the last quarter, and we haven't got that in front of us, but I've got it here. And so we, you know, we underwrote about $2 billion of deals uh, in, in asking price, you know, 14,000 units, um, at least in this sheet. These are the most sort of well fleshed out underwrites, uh, oftentimes been through multiple rounds of bid and even, um, you know, 1982 average. Uh, last quarter, we were at 1991, uh, average of 844 square feet. Um, you know, last quarter we were at uh, eight hundred thirty-two square feet, so really very close um, deal size. I think I think so. Actually, if you see here, um, last quarter we we were kind of uh, fifty-two forty-eight off market, and this quarter we're fifty-three forty-seven off market. So we we're kind of um, you know still maintaining a, a significant focus on, you know, obviously there are more market deals than off-market deals, but I think we, we kind of tend to select a little bit more, especially to get this far down the road on like off-market deals that we feel we might have a special, you know, a, a, like a, more likely to be a kind of an, um, sort of, on you know, uh, exploited value or a more differential value there. Um, yep. So, and then, also interesting, I suppose, is that uh pricing. So pricing last quarter was kind of 140 average, and we actually saw it continue to go up, I think, to 142. I mean, it's it's pretty similar, but um, but the pricing that we are willing to pay um is is kind of stayed, it's it's really stayed pretty steady, actually. Um deal sizes were actually slightly smaller this quarter, although you know it's kind of skewed by the top end. So um we're averaging 47 million, which is, you know, probably above the median, but, um, you know, that's a good chunk of change there. And last quarter, we were averaging uh, 59 million, which I think was pulled up by a couple of big things and also by like a, a serious um, off market deals that, you know, thought might make some sense. Um, let's see here. What else? cap rates um you know it's always tough because you're looking at the cap rates in the market and you know it's it's, you know 3.2 to to you know going in cap rate typically um you know and and even if we're looking to buy it it was at 3.6 now i think starting in the kind of you know so this is actually in chronological order in terms of deals so you can kind of see that this is kind of heat maps a little bit. Um, and uh, it's a slight trend, but it's visible. I think that, you know, at the beginning, you've got a lot of threes here in the top half of the sheet. Um, and you start to see some fours creeping in, some higher threes uh, towards this bottom half here, as we get into the, uh, you know, more recent months where, where we've seen some rates moving and, and deals kind of, you know, experiencing difficulties. Um, and, of course, it's been hard to buy them. Um, I think most notable, actually, um, about returns is that uh, we've seen, so I think there, um, with the, uh, and now we're seeing that, We think it's actually 13.1, so that's that's 1.2% less in terms of what we think you're gonna get um, going in. And then also, uh, we're also 24.8%, and this is on average um, uh, project IRR that we're underwriting, which is uh, a full point higher than last quarter at 23.9. So that's this number here. Um, So, you know, you're starting to see that impact where because the rates have been moving up that we need to get a higher return um, to, to make everything work. The other part of this is that um, with uh, with the way that debt's been changing, you know, we're not actually constrained by the, uh, you know, the sort of the, the buy sell, um, which is, you know, the cap rate on exit is what determines a lot of your, you um, your IRR and you know cap rates maybe haven't moved that much, but the cash yield absolutely has moved. And so um, we're having to get high, like we're showing higher IRRs, because we're selling for lower prices. And why are we selling for lower prices? We're selling for lower prices because you know the cash flow is lower, and we we just need to be lower to have acceptable cash flow.
0: Yeah, this is a really really important point, and it's why you can't just look at a deal from one metric. You can't just Look at cash on cash, you can't just look at IRR or price per door, or cap rate, or, or pr- price per foot. So, looking at as far as return metrics go, we have those two constraints or targets, which are IRR and cash on cash. And as Charles mentioned, we generally can't do a deal uh, if the IRR looks good, but the cash on cash looks bad and uh, or, or vice versa. The exception would be something, for example, like a heavy turnaround deal that offers no cash flow for the first year or so, uh, but in the end you get a big IRR because you turned it around. But even with a deal like that, your stabilized cash on cash is still strong, most likely. So the reason for those two targets and why both have to uh, be met is is it's really kind of a protection. It's it's almost like a, a protection against you're making a mistake because it's very easy to show a high IRR. You just lower the exit cap and just project to sell the property in the future for a higher price. And cash on cash is much harder to manipulate. And it kind of brings you back to reality. So even if you show a deal with a high flying IRR, it's going to get chopped down if it doesn't meet the cash on cash requirement. So, well, so it, it's uh, it keeps you disciplined. And I think, Allows us to you know, keep ourselves safe and know that we're not overpaying because at the end of the day, you have to live by your cash flow and, and be comfortable with
2: your cash flow. And if you end up holding the deal longer than you originally anticipated,
1: um, so yeah, so kind of in that vein as well, you know, the Last quarter, we had uh, an average uh, underwritten cap rate. So these numbers here are 3.6 and 6.1. So, you know, we've seen the last quarter, we were actually making our deals work at 5.8% stabilized yield on cost. And now we're having to break six just to make anything make sense. And of course, if you look at the most recent, you know, say like the last, you know, what is this? um, 30 deals. Um, it's close, you know, it's, it's above, it's 6.3, you know, and um, if we look at only the ones in Houston, uh, we're starting to really be a lot higher, you know, so, uh, I mean, let's see here, 6.3. I mean, the most recent ones, especially are coming in higher, you know, the, the movement, you know, where we were up here at the top, we were a lot of, you know, 5.7, 5.2, everything's in the fives. You know, now there are actually a lot more sixes just all over the place. So, um, you know, we're, we're having to take that into account. Um, so we've been up 40 BIPs uh, in terms of uh, what we sorry, 30 BIPs in terms of what we were solving for. And uh, our stable low um, cost, which is kind of tracks almost exactly what we'd expect, you know, given the interest rate rises. And also that's just an average, you know, it's, it's increased, you know, in the more recent underwrites, you um, Likewise, actually, the um, we've also seen, you know, in this environment, it's with construction costs
2: um, that uh, you know there's always the inflation, so things are costing more. Also,
1: you know, in this environment, like the market bailing you out, we have to make sure that we're you know fully capitalized um, and 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 having a plan that involves actually doing something. Uh, and so last quarter. Uh, our average CapEx budget was uh, 8705 a door. Um, So this number was 8705 a door Uh, and this quarter we're at 10,049. So it's, you know, really just, you know, we've seen increases in costs and I'm being sure to take those into account.
0: So Charles said something that he says a lot, actually, and I want to unpack it a little bit. It's about, it's about how uh, he said, he said we have to actually do something to make the deal work. And that's, really speaking about the low cap rates in the market, where it forces you to have to have a value add plan. You have to find ways to push other income and create value to get yourself out from under that low going in cap rate to an attractive yield on cost. And <clears throat> that has been true. And, I, and it, it's probably only gotten truer as debt has become less accretive. The, 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 the counter to that is, well, can you buy just instead of a value ideal, can you buy a stabilized deal, maybe a newer product in a nicer core location, and you know you're going to accept a lower IRR but maybe you can manufacture some decent cash on cash and you're taking less risk because you don't have business plan implementation risk, and you're just you have a higher quality asset so that I think is one valid way to go, but then the problem is. How do you finance it? I think that is the really big challenge with the market right now, and you know Char- Charles is talking to lenders and debt brokers every day, so we have the you know inside track as far as what's going on in the in the debt market, and from what we understand, and what we're hearing from bridge lenders, and there, there's two problems, and this is somewhat of a, of a of now a bigger tangent, but there's two problems right on the bridge side. We're hearing more and more that lenders want you to actually do something. They are not just happy just to give you a bridge if the deal isn't really well-suited for a bridge. Rewind six months ago, bridge lenders were putting out money at rock-bottom pricing and they didn't really care if your deal actually penciled. They're just putting out money. Now they are really actually seeing, well, do you actually have a business plan here that's actually going to create value uh, for this for this deal and, and to, make the, to make the bridge loan make sense? So that's one problem, right? You can't buy a new shiny deal with a bridge loan. And then the, on the flip side, how do you use permanent financing for a stabilized deal? Because the going in yield doesn't cover, which means that, you know, because permanent financing is size based on in-place income, you, you can't really get any, any leverage. So uh, I'm seeing people do deals at uh, 50% LTV, which is very different than the 75% LTPs that they were doing six months ago. So anyway, that that's a, that's kind of I think one of the biggest challenges in the market. Charles, do you have any thoughts there? Uh
1: yeah, I mean the, you know, I think we saw that it's it's hit, you know, especially deals that had weak going in cap rates. And, you know, that's there's been two kind of, I mean, things that have happened with the bridges and you know, at least some of the two things, they're probably more things, but you know, one is the Um, just anything with weak going in cover, um, you know, and and a a low cap rate got hit disproportionately, right? I mean, you know, people kind of are happy to finance something with a four on it, but stuff with a three, just not so happy anymore at all. Um, You know, even if it's a newer, nicer asset, and maybe there's a reason for that, it's just at the end of the day, the numbers need to be there. And um, they're not there if if it's, you know, that profile. Uh, The other thing is that, like Rob was saying, you have to actually do the work and, and do something. And so, um, you know, people will be buying with bridge and they would be buying a deal. And, you know, it's, they, they, they want to actually, because, you know, basically what everyone was doing was they would be buying um, with a bridge loan, max leverage, and then you would figure that just the the inflation and rents would basically cover um, what, what you need to kind of make the deal work. Uh, and that was what everyone was underwriting, but now, um, that kind of level no longer flies and the kind of light value add or sort of like we're doing a light value add, but really we're achieving our value add just using market rents, that, that's no longer acceptable. You have to actually be justifying your rents with um, what you're doing um, and it has to be above inflation. So um, so yeah, on, those, on that point about um, having to do something... Um, so I guess also you can kind of see, um, there's been, you know, some, some of multiple order, um, you know, at the beginning here, we've got like the first, say 12 deals or so, um, average of 3.2%, uh, cop of the broker
2: ask, uh, and we want to buy at 3.6%.
1: Uh, and then for the last 3% that they want, um, and we're at 4.1. So, um, you know, with, with the chain, you know, so we've been up 50 BIPs and, and the going in caps at the US kind of we're, we're hovering, but um, not as much. And, you know, with the the pricing today also is that, um, you know, there are a lot of these processes at this point that, that haven't really succeeded um, in some of these or, or that have seen significant markdowns uh, um, so it's kind of tough to see um, in this uh, uh, analysis just because we're actually tracking or we're looking more where we want it but um, you know the deals, um, in the last two months that have been out are just either choosing to you know to hold or um, you know, the, the pricing is down 15% or more, 25% even in some cases.
0: Yeah, and it's, this is also very early, right? This data is from Q2. So there's already been, you know, we're in July now and there's already been changes since June uh, that we're seeing in the market. And I think there's going to be more uh, movement in this direction.
2: I think there's a lot of it is that initial shot. I'll the... Uh, the other
0: comment just to I, I've been saying this a lot but I'll say it here as well, is uh, the way that we've changed our debt strategy. So at at a high level, obviously debt has gotten a whole lot less accretive. So logically speaking, if something is less accretive, it would make sense to use less of it. And the other thing is there's higher risk in today's market than before. So that's also another strong argument to use less leverage. So that that's kind of the high level why you would want to. But then you just look at the practicality of it as well and you can see that the 80% debt is not available anymore. It's very expensive.
1: Yeah, and so again, you can see that that's weighed on prices. With So we, we tracking you know, our, our kind of to what the guidance is, you know, and, and last quarter we were around ninety two percent, you know, a time in like high eighties mid, you know, percentage of so we're, we're significantly wider than we were before.
2: Yeah, and the price difference uh,
0: between, real quick, the price difference between sixty five percent and eighty percent is is huge now, whereas Six months ago, it was nominal. There was a very small difference. Uh, so that is also
2: a factor in terms of your decision regarding taking on incremental leverage. Well, oh, right.
1: And like in practice, to I mean, that just means people that the deals. You know the cap rates the cap rate and the yield and cost kind of is you know it does depend on what you think is achievable in the market. So like if your debt just exceeds the yield on thing then there's just it's not going to average your 10% of leverage exceed just going to cost you like a point or something. Then it's just it, it's going to kill the deal. And so that's obviously <laughs> been what is, you know, causing these changes. Um but it also creates opportunities, you know, so like with this, you know some sponsors, I think, were kind of more ahead of it than others, you know, and of course, there was kind of this rush, I think, to some extent, like you could see there was a, a huge surge of deal flow in the first maybe quarter and a bit, um, you know, as kind of everyone figured that this was going to happen to a more or less extent, you know, with, with the rates moving. And so a lot of people were trying to sell them. Um, and then so maybe there's kind of this push to get someone under contract to buy the thing at, at you know, that price before kind of the cliff hits um and so some people you know kind of on the margin got in over their skis um and uh you know so we're seeing you're seeing these opportunities arise where you know maybe a deal fell out and, and that, there's quite a bit of that you know going back to the kind of the second bidder or third or whatever um which also means you have to be careful because you know even if you're like the fifth bidder bid because you could be called on um so it's it's uh but it's definitely a source of opportunity so with the eighty seven percent you know um bid to to ask I guess you know that that we're at today um that's also been a movement not just on our part but in the market um that that is
2: creating some opportunities. Mm-hmm. Do you want to uh, do a
0: DFW versus Houston discussion, or do we want to talk more about
2: pricing trends just broadly? Uh,
1: I mean, I think you know we can have a kind of a discussion. I mean, it's kind of the same story as you expect really, um, I think, which is, You know, price per door is higher there. Uh, You know, we're looking at 162 average guidance. Um, Sorry, one second.
0: Yeah, so while Charles is working on that, uh, as far as the typical story that we've been seeing as far as DFW Houston for years is just that DFW is just a bit more pricey on a price per door basis because rents are a bit higher and cap rates are a decent bit lower. And that the reason for that is because investors generally are more optimistic about DFW. They think the growth is better, jobs are better. It's a more resilient market. So that's why it trades at a premium to Houston. With that being said, I felt and still do feel that DFW prices will come down more than Houston prices. Which we are really hoping will present a buying opportunity for us in DFW because we've never been really able to make the numbers work. But that's just my suspicion. And I think Charles agrees.
1: Yeah. So I mean you can see here with, you know, average vintage in Dallas that we've been looking at is 1977. Um, you know, the uh the price per door is higher. So 162 so they're older and the prices are higher um you know the cap rates have been tough you know uh 3.2 average uh but you, you see some twos here a, a good number of twos um you know and uh <laughs> so the and we're having to as a you know as a res- result um we're having to solve, you know, a lot of sick costs. So the bottom line, so we've been more consistently looking at older product in Dallas as well. So like this 77 or whatever, um, you know, our average age in Houston is 1980, 1984. Uh, and we have a number of, you know, 22,000s builds in there. And so, you know, that really speaks to the fact that on average, the, the pricing per unit is higher. And um,
2: yeah, it's just, you know, the thing, thing is I will say uh, on the
1: returns front, I think uh, you know we're also you know we are reflecting those increased growth prospects. There's some, there's some I think we're we're definitely anticipating some growth in Dallas. Um, you know, so you can see that our average bid ask there actually is about the same 88 percent on average as across kind of both markets um but you know it's 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 absolutely tough and uh you know but but probably it is you know I will say in Dallas it has probably been hit harder because the growth is such an aspect migration is such an aspect you know I think like the recession that, that would be hit um you know and uh just a lot of deals you know I was there two weeks ago and a lot of the brokers are kind of like well I'm on vacation I haven't got anything right now you know uh there's like this stuff if you want that's available that hasn't traded from you know two weeks ago or whatever but uh you have to pay yesterday's price probably still and a lot of it and it's starting to move but you know of course the buyer pool is strong significantly as well so it's it's just you know the prices down this much and like what people we can pay has gone down more, more a lot of the time so um and especially true in Dallas definitely um
0: I think is really interesting, I was very surprised at how quickly the market adjusted to that initial price move, right? Everyone was saying, oh, prices are down 10%. And everyone handled it very well, sellers handled it very well, and transaction volume remained high, at least in our market, uh, at least in Texas. However, DFW, is one of the high growth markets like charles said in the country you've got denver dfw tampa i mean all of all of florida uh, phoenix and so i'm also hearing in phoenix though that transactions have really slowed down and which is maybe somewhat surpri- somewhat surprising to me because i would think that because it's performed so well it's uh, sellers are sitting on so much capital gain, you would think they'd be willing to lower their price and still move and take their win. But it seems like it's the opposite. It seems like, uh, if I'm not mistaken, DFW has slowed down transaction-wise more than Houston. And from what I'm hearing, Phoenix is is very slow. So maybe it's the high growth markets that are are slowing because that's where sellers or owners have the highest expectations for their, their sale value. And you know, they're just shocked by what the brokers are telling them. So they're just,
1: you know, no,
2: I
0: won't sell then.
1: Well, I mean, a lot of it also is that in in those markets, they have, you know, in Dallas, there's been some activity recently, you know, it's, it's been on fire. Right. So like, of course, first of all, there was further to fall. And second of all, a lot of these deals actually are, you know, two years maybe in hold periods, even less sometimes, you know, I think there's a lot more of that just rapid flipping. And so to some extent, the buyers actually, you yeah, well, they, they, they didn't experience the growth because they just bought it. Some of them or the sellers even, um, I think that it, my perception is a good amount of that in Dallas. And, and, you know, that's also probably part of that phenomenon. There's yeah. Just, but, that yeah but, but,
0: but that doesn't really explain why Houston seems to be chugging along still.
1: Well, because Houston never attracted the same kind of light, you know, because a lot of people were just like, no, Houston, but people could kind of sell themselves in the Dallas growth. I think Houston, you know, so Houston never really got as heated. It was just starting to get heated maybe, you know, this year.
0: Yeah, you could make the argument that markets like Phoenix and Dallas were decoupled or getting decoupled. The valuations were getting decoupled from uh, fundamentals, but I would argue most likely not because lenders have done an excellent job keeping everybody in check for the most part uh, this cycle. But yeah, that's a good, it's a fair point about Houston. Uh, I, the numbers have always just made more sense in Houston, right? We, we joke, but it's not really a joke, that you, you buy Houston
2: based on the numbers and you buy Dallas based on the story. We' uh, yeah, quick so Charles, with Charles, I'll, I'll take definitely. this question here.
0: Yep. Uh, I'm going to take this question here from Joshua in the chat, and if people have questions, please uh, just put them in the chat and then we'll probably wrap up here soon and we can just have regular q and a if you want to unmute and, and have a conversation. But Joshua's asking about perm financing and its uh restrictions based on in place income. What alternatives are we reviewing to achieve? Uh, our debt or are you just okay with taking lower leverage options. So yeah, we we have shifted our debt strategy going from 80% leverage, 75% leverage down to 60 65. So that's kind of a nice easy easy move. It's not easy for us. It's we have to raise almost double the amount of equity. So it's a lot more work and it's less profitable for the sponsor to do that. But uh it just seems like really the the only the, the best option for us by far moving forward to just trying to get deals done. Put together the best deals for our investors, and, uh, and and protect ourselves on the downside. So that is number one, uh, and and that lower leverage debt is still bridge debt, so it's not perm debt. Uh, so that doesn't quite answer Joshua's question as far as the r- restrictions on perm financing. You know, sure, we would love to do perm debt. We were, it was hard before all this stuff. Uh, last year we were really fortunate to do two deals on perm financing because they had cap rates that could support the in-place income underwriting. Uh, but by and large, very, very few deals can, can do that. Uh, and that, that goes back the last few years uh, at the leverage points that we were looking for around 75. So the lower leverage stuff that we're doing today is still bridge, but now it's bank debt, and it's still three plus one plus one term structure. So three-year initial term with two, one-year extension options. Uh, so
2: uh, I think we, we haven't gotten too creative, but that is, uh, that is uh, what we've done so far. I mean, I'm not sure what alternatives there
1: would be because of some of the deal now actually than it was just because it's
2: a bit less competitive and the pricing has moved. But uh, there is less volume slightly at the moment, so...